Well, Heavenly Father, it is in that beautiful and matchless name of our Lord Jesus that we come before you now, grateful for all that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. Father, what remarkable truths we ponder this Christmas season. The reality that the one who spoke the worlds into existence humbled himself took upon himself the form of a servant, even an infant child, became obedient even unto death, death on a cross for our sake. Lord, would you give us a growing understanding of these truths? Give us a growing understanding of the plan of salvation and your amazing and wonderful and marvelous interruption of our lives through Christ, solving the curse of sin. So as we open our Bibles, Lord, teach us and use this time to grow us that we would um, not be an embarrassment this Christmas season to the name of Christ, acting just like the rest of the world, but that we would indeed be true worshipers of the living Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I thought that uh, being... The month of December, it was a good time for us to gear up for Christmas. To do that, on Sunday mornings, we will be having a Christmas series. I've entitled it, The Things That Really Matter. And so I thought we should start with a checklist. A checklist this morning to make sure we can do Christmas. All right, are you ready? On our checklist, we want to evaluate whether we really need these things to do Christmas. Number one on our checklist... You say yes or no, or check or no check. Walmart. Yes or no? I think you're liars. You say, no, we don't need Walmart to do Christmas, and none of you will not do Walmart to do Christmas. I'm going to try not to do Walmart. I'm going to do Macy's instead. How about porch lights? Porch lights. Got that on your checklist? Can we do Christmas without porch lights? Please. (laughs) How about uh, chimneys? Can we do Christmas without chimneys? Yes or no? Uh, We could probably pull it off, couldn't we? How about uh, Christmas trees? Except for the one in the foyer, we can do all the rest without, huh? (laughs) How How about window wreaths? Whoever invented that? Especially on second floor windows when the windows are painted shut and you've got to get the extension ladder out. We can't do Christmas without our Christmas wreaths. How about, um, I know, how about reindeer? Can we do Christmas without reindeer regardless of the color of their nose? Let's try. Can we try that one? The big guy in the red suit, can we do Christmas without him? Oh... How about this one? Can we do Christmas without mistletoe, really? Nah. All right, here we go. How about this? The virgin birth. Hmm. Can we do Christmas without the virgin birth? You know, as we get ready to check off our list and be ready for the Christmas season, 
to know whether or not we're prepared. We always have to check through all the things that are important to us and all the home traditions and the things that really matter to us about Christmas. And I don't want to take away from our traditions and all of these things. But this morning, I do want to call your attention to Luke's Gospel in chapter 1 as we lay a foundation for both the Christmas season and for our time at the Lord's table to conclude our service. I thought it would be appropriate for us to begin the month of December in our Christmas season with communion. We will begin and we will sort of end with it. We will have communion again together, if you can make it, for the Christmas Eve service. Even as you turn in your Bibles, let me remind you of a couple of important uh, times on the calendar here that you and your family may want to make a priority as you hopefully work hard this year to make the worship of our Lord Jesus the goal of our Christmas season. Next Sunday evening is a time when we gather here on a Sunday evening for our children's platform Christmas musical program. And uh, it'll, inc- it'll warm your hearts and give you a chuckle as our children have worked hard for that. The following Wednesday night, one week from tonight, we want to be a blessing to some of our shut-ins and some of our nursing homes as we have church-wide Christmas caroling. Come and get on a bus and go different places and encourage those who can't be out this season. And then uh, two weeks from this morning will be our Christmas cantata with our choir during the Sunday morning services, regularly scheduled. And then, of course, Christmas Eve, we will have a candlelight service here for those who can make it, including communion. So that's the Christmas lineup. I hope that you'll make it a priority to be together with your church family whenever possible. We have the most remarkable uh, foundation laid in our Christmas story. I've chosen Luke's gospel uh, to begin with because it is with such clarity that Luke emphasizes the reality of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. Now, we all know about the virgin birth. In fact, that's one of the problems that we have with the entire Christmas story, isn't it? Over-familiarity. And sometimes we lose touch with the, reality, with the reality of some of the nuance of what was really happening and how incredible it is, this marvelous plan of God's salvation through Christ as he put on flesh and came to earth as the Christmas Uh, spiritual goes for poor ornery sinners like you and like me and so I like Luke so much if you would let your eyes cast over to the beginning of Luke in chapter 1 and just remind yourself of what kind of guy Luke was remember he was not one of the disciples in the sense of an of, of the 12 who followed Jesus but Luke was a little bit after the fact he was a contemporary but he was a researcher he was known to be a medical doctor he's a historian and uh, look what he says by way of introduction in his gospel many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That would be the apostles and those present with the Lord. The eyewitnesses passed on this information. Verse 3, Luke says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Isn't that good? 
Luke says, I've been watching and I've been listening and I've been pondering and I'm interested in this kind of thing. And so he's taken his yellow tablet and he's spent some time and he's wandered around and he's done some research and he's done some interviews and he's done some fact checking. And he has this friend Theophilus and he writes out what he calls an orderly account. And Luke's gospel is really an orderly account of the entire life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, notice where he starts and notice the emphasis on this fact of the virgin birth. We'll begin now with verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary said, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Will you say verse 37 with me again? For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Isn't that a remarkable response from this wonderful young lady? totally out of nowhere, this angel, and what a figure, what a character he must have been. Look over at verse 19, when he came to Zechariah, remember, to tell Zechariah that in his old age, his wife Elizabeth would have a son. Do you remember his name? The boy that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have? John, known as John the Baptist, right? In fact, let's just think about that for a minute. kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that if you're God, and as the choir already sang this morning, and you have been silent for 400 years, and you're going to interrupt the silence now. See, the last time the prophets had revelation from God, Malachi, 400 silent years. That's the blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then Matthew's gospel, God is speaking again after 400 silent years, but he's going to speak through the cry of a baby first in a manger. He's going to tell the world, now's the time. All that you've been waiting for all of these years since my promise to Abraham, since even way back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, do you remember? That when God cursed the serpent, he said it would be what? It would be the seed of the woman that would come and crush his head. And now... The head crusher is going to be there in a manger to start with. And it only makes sense, doesn't it? That God would say, hmm, I don't think God ever does this, but hmm, here's what I think I'll do. 
I will tell them that Messiah has come. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so that's the role of John the Baptist, if you want to have that clear in your head. John the Baptist, born also through an amazing birth, but not so amazing as the virgin birth, an old man and an old woman. We've seen that in Scripture before, haven't we? Born of Zechariah and Elizabeth, coming to earth to do what? As the prophet Isaiah said, as one crying in the wilderness. What was he crying in the wilderness? It wasn't boo-hoo, it was shouting out in the wilderness. Make way! Straighten out the roads! Fill in the low spots in the valleys. The king is coming. We want to have a great highway for him. Jesus, Messiah, is coming. And so he wandered around, hollering out this weird, bushy, bearded, locust and honey-eating, sackcloth-dressed prophet, shouting out, the Messiah has come. It was his cousin, and it was Jesus. Kind of makes sense, though, if you think about it. If I was God and I'm going to come into the world, I'm going to send somebody ahead and tell them. But the world has a hard time hearing, don't they? And John the Baptist got pretty much the same reception you'd get if you ran down to the Walmart or the mall and started shouting out, Messiah has come! Messiah has come! Prepare you the way of the Lord! What? And uh, it's interesting, though, I started to direct our attention to Gabriel, the angel. Look what he says in verse 19. The angel that came to Zechariah to announce that John the Baptist would be born is the same age, a, angel that God sent to speak to Mary in verse 26. He says in verse 19, I am Gabriel. Look at this. I love this. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? What must he have been like? This one who stands in the presence of God himself in the throne room and then, go, it's time to go. And he comes to this beautiful young lady, Mary, with her servant's heart, this gentle spirit, and she is told the most remarkable thing. I tried to back away from the passage a little bit and as I was pondering what we should uh, do for our Christmas message series this year, I thought it's so, you know, we repeat so many of the themes. It's difficult. And so as I read through the gospel accounts again, I thought, Lord, um, just help me to just be struck by the reality of this passage. And when I read this passage and then look back in, in Matthew's gospel as well, it just really hit me. When you read what we just read, Luke 1, 26 to 38, what is the most remarkable thing we read? That an angel came from God who stands in the presence of God? That's pretty remarkable. But I think the most remarkable thing has to be the repeated emphasis in Luke's orderly account of this that it would be what? It would be a virgin who would conceive. You know, I want to emphasize this morning now in the the few minutes we have remaining and and trust the Lord will use this even to prepare our hearts to conclude our service with a reminder of why this baby came. But I want us to just focus for a minute on point number one of what really matters this Christmas. What really matters this Christmas is one thing that if you remove it, you can't have Christmas. And that is the virgin birth. And you say, why? I've never really thought about that. It's a doctrine of the church. It's something that we believe. What is so significant about the virgin birth? I'm going to suggest a couple of very significant things concerning our salvation and the reality of it. I'd like to suggest two other things before we get there in just um, uh, uh, challenging our thinking, almost in an informational way. Point number one is this, 
The virgin birth, historically, it matters because it has been a battleground for biblical authority. The virgin birth, historically, has been one doctrine that has become a battleground concerning the matter of biblical authority. What do I mean by that? It is interesting to note, and I can get into great detail, and I've even uh, thrown off things from the early service that I was reading and so forth, but... Just, just let me make a little point here on this. When we read the story here, it, right away it just says there is this virgin, a girl who is pure, a girl who is unmarried, who has not been with a man. And the focal point of the story is the reality of the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her and she is going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That is ludicrous, isn't it? And that's exactly what liberal theologians have thought down through the centuries, particularly though in our country, within the last hundred years, the virgin birth has often been the focal point of liberal theologians, that is, those who would question the integrity of Scripture and say, I don't know if that's really the Word of God or not. And one of the things they will do is they will take the virgin birth and they point it out as something that is... It's... um, either mythical or it's poetic, it's symbolic, but it doesn't really mean what it means and that ultimately if Mary had a baby and she did, that she certainly had it biologically and physiologically the way every other woman's ever had a baby and that there's no such thing as the reality of a virgin birth. And so there's been a conflict and, and this has been a focal point, a battleground you might say. And, uh, People who want to destroy the integrity and the authority of Scripture have pointed at this. And in fact, it's even uh, back, not so much now, it's not thought of in this light so much in in our Bible leadership circles. It's a very important doctrine. But um, when my dad was younger and in ministry and and young men came out of seminary and were, were being ordained, a question that they were sure to get was, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And that one question represented this. It was the same equivalent question as saying this. Do you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ? Do you know what I mean by that? Deity means, was Jesus Christ really God? That's why we say de- deity means God. Is Jesus Christ really God? And so it became sort of a Uh, a linchpin question. It became a a question that was important to answer. And by answering, I believe in the literal, real virgin birth of Jesus was the same thing as saying, I believe that Jesus really came from God. And so this is the point. Does the Bible really mean what it says? Because you have to understand, it started long ago, as I've already referenced in Genesis chapter 3, 15, it said, the seed of the woman, right? And normally we don't think in those terms. A woman doesn't have the seed. The man has the seed and he implants it. All right. But God clearly said in cursing the serpent that it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. We call that the proto-evangelium, the very first sampling of the gospel. The gospel being that God would come and rescue us from our own sinfulness. It didn't stop there, though. You know the passage well in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, right? What does it say? This will be a sign unto you. What's the sign going to be? A virgin shall conceive. 
All right? And then when you open up the Gospels, you read in Matthew's account and you read in Luke's account, and it's very funny, liberal theologians, that is, people who want to deny the reality of the Word of God or that the words of our Bible mean what they say, will say, the only two places in the Bible that says it is Matthew and Luke. I don't think that's that significant. Or they'll also say, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote the whole book of Acts. He wrote all the pastoral epistles. And the Apostle Paul never, ever mentioned the virgin birth as a primary doctrine. I don't think it really matters. But we have at the crux of the matter, as far as a battleground over biblical authority, this very thing. We just read that a virgin would conceive. We know that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. We know that the prophets of old looked for a virgin to conceive and bear a child that would be the Messiah. Either the Bible means what it says or it doesn't mean what it says. And so the very authority of Scripture, and for some reason, because I think, kind of like a worldwide flood picture, doesn't seem scientific, it doesn't seem intellectual, that it seems kind of unintellectual to believe in the virgin birth. You either receive the word of God or you don't receive it. And so there it is. So one reason this Christmas that I wanted to just draw our attention to the doctrine of the virgin birth is that we get shot at for this doctrine. And in fact, our Bible either teaches it or it doesn't teach it. And if words mean anything, then a virgin conceived and bore a child, didn't she? As incredible as that to believe. One, one liberal theologian was famous for quoting this. He said, the tomb was full and the manger was empty. The tomb was full and the manger was empty. And this is all mythical. This is just a way, a manner of speaking. All right, enough of that. Point number two that I wanted to make on why the virgin birth matters. Not only has the virgin birth historically been a battleground over biblical authority, but the virgin birth ends up in some sense, being a proving ground for doctrinal clarity. A proving ground for doctrinal clarity. Now, I have a brother-in-law that works as an engineer at the proving ground in Aberdeen, Maryland. What is a proving ground? A proving ground is a place where you test things, right? To see if they really are what they are. And one of the things that, surprisingly enough, in my mind it's kind of surprising because I find that the Bible is so clear on this point, is that there has been a sweeping belief around the world uh, concerning the virgin birth that lacks doctrinal clarity. And there's just been a tremendous amount of confusion and a lot of misunderstandings have been widely accepted. And it particularly has to do with whether or not Mary had herself any original sin. That is, when we talk about um, the, the virgin mother, that is, did Mary herself have any sinfulness? Because if she did, then how could she have a baby that was completely holy? And so there has been a teaching that has been widely propagated in uh, other faiths that clearly teaches that Mary had no original sin. In fact, from this, we even get the phrase, and most of us know this phrase, whether you understand or not, this entire faith system, the idea of called the immaculate conception. Have you heard that? The immaculate... Now, where's Jeff Adels? That is not to be confused with Pittsburgh Steeler fans and the immaculate reception. Okay, that's a totally different thing. All right, the immaculate conception um, is basically, if you think about it, many people think they're talking about Jesus, right? That 
Jesus was immaculately conceived, that is, conceived without any original sin. But this church does not teach that, and it's widely accepted. What they mean by the immaculate conception is that Mary herself was conceived without sin. Therefore, she had no sin nature by which to pass on to the Holy Christ child. You follow me? And in fact, um, a quote from... 1854 from a council uh, by Pope Pius IX said this. This is a direct quote. The most holy virgin Mary was in the first moment of her conception preserved free from the stain of original sin. Did you get that? Now, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. And when it comes to the virgin birth, the baby that was born, Jesus, was born without sin. We'll talk about that in just a second. But Mary herself had original sin. Isn't it interesting that as Mary held the baby boy, and that's one of my favorite songs. In fact, I've kind of worn it out around here and had to give it a few years off. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day basically save the world? Walk on water. Okay. And basically, Mary's holding a baby in her arms that would be her redeemer, right? She's holding a baby that she conceived, who is without sin, who could go to the cross and take her sin problem away from her. All right? And so that's enough of that point as well, just to let you know that there's kind of two technical areas that the virgin birth has ramifications in kind of a, a greater way. Uh, related to that, before I leave it completely, related to that is an interesting doctrine that is also confusing and is not in Scripture. Therefore, the call for doctrinal clarity on the virgin birth, and that is the perpetual virginity of Mary. Have you heard that? The perpetual virginity of Mary. And that is that even when she had the child, she had no original sin. Therefore, she was not born in sin. She does not need a Savior. All right? And in fact, perpetual virginity and even um, praying to Mary has resulted from that. People will ask Mary for the forgiveness of sin even or pray to Mary for guidance even. The Bible doesn't teach that, does it? So we have to be very careful with these doctrines, the way they can unfold and make sure that we hold to what the scripture says. Uh, what they teach, you say, well, if, if, how could she maintain herself as a perpetual virgin if she gave literal physical birth? And what, what their church teaches is that somehow, in a spiritual way, it came right through the uterine wall. And uh, the baby did not pass through the normal birth canal. And it's just kind of interesting. And it gets very interesting, and it goes on and on. And uh, I want you to just know, A, Liberal theologians have used the virgin birth as a battleground to question the very authority of Scripture. Words don't mean what they say. And the virgin birth also is an area that, that creates a call for doctrinal clarity so that we understand what the Bible really teaches. Finally, and then let's just uh, quickly remind ourselves of a couple of the important reasons why um, the virgin birth is so important. Why does the virgin birth matter in the Christmas story. Namely, number three, it is the common ground for the connection of deity and humanity. It is the common ground whereby God becomes man and man becomes God. And this is the mystery of what we would call, theologians would call it, the hypostatic union. How can all man be all God and all God be all man? It's amazing, isn't it? 
but it's what the Bible teaches. By the way, um, if you have a minute, you can look up later Mark chapter 3, verses 21 and 31, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And there it talks about the other children that Mary did indeed have. Mary had other children. Mark chapter 6, you can find that. Well, what does, what does the virgin birth do for us? I want you to notice in here, uh, when it, it clearly emphasizes that the virgin is pledged to be married to a man, the virgin's name was Mary. You get the idea, she was a virgin. That's pretty made pretty clear. Then notice, it says, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will No, no end. This is some kind of a special baby, isn't it? Who could you say that about? All right? And so the first thing I wanted to emphasize as to why the virgin birth matters is, number one, it is a reminder to us that God is the initiator of salvation. God is the initiator of salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Humankind is stuck Original sin is on us, as in Adam all die, all right? And it is only in Christ that all are made alive. And the reality of it is, what? For God, you know that everybody knows this verse, right? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever all mankind would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who started it? Who made it happen? Did a man think it up? Did a man just say one day, I've got a real problem. I can't jump high enough to get into heaven. So I'm going to figure out a system. No, see, the, the deal here is that God is the one who initiated it. And what a better way than announcing through the angel to Mary that she's going to have this baby. It's going to be a real baby. It was a physical baby. I take it that this baby... In impregnated by the Holy Spirit. I have no way of explaining the physiology of this, but I take it that it went through all of the normal nine-month phases of a growing baby and was delivered normally like all babies in human flesh, and it was 100% human and 100% God, humanity and deity coming together on common ground in an unusual and remarkable, and some people would say absurd way, But let me ask you this question. Would it speak of God's initiating salvation if it was a normal baby with a human father? It would just be another kid, right? I don't know if God could have some way figured out another plan. This is a perfect plan. In the mind of God, were there multiple ways to save the world? I have no idea. You have to ask him when you get there. All I know is that it's a perfect word and it's a perfect plan. And if it had been a human father and a human mother and a normal baby, what's so spectacular about that? So in my mind, number one, it totally makes sense that this virgin birth points to the reality that God is the initiator of salvation. Man couldn't help himself out of his ditch. He needed God to come pull him out. The second part of it is, is in some of the roles of what Christ plays. Why did this baby have to be so unique? Why couldn't just one representative person go to the cross and die on the cross? And this is where the virgin birth, secondly, is related to the sinlessness of Christ. 
Okay, It's a statement about our salvation initiated by God, and the virgin birth is also a statement about the sinlessness of Christ. Why is that important? Well, it's important because God can't look at sin, right? And so it's just like if two guys break into the candy store all right, and steal candy cigarettes. Remember those? I shouldn't talk about this stuff. I don't know why that came into my mind. <laughs> I'll tell you a story someday. Bubble gum. They break into the candy store and they steal bubble gum. They take a brick and they throw it through Mr. Genetics candy store. Real place, real time. I've been there. And throw a brick through Mr. Genetics candy store and steal bubble gum. And they both get caught. And the cops have them spread eagled out and ready to cuff them. And they both had their hand in the pot and they're both guilty. One of them can't say to the other one, Hey, I have an idea. I'll take your punishment. I'll put it on me. I'll just cover And then you can go free. What does the police officer say? You what? I'm going to serve the time for my buddy. No. Why can't he serve the time for his buddy? Because he's guilty too. And so the wrath of the judge has to fall on him as well. He's got to pay. And so that's a little bit of a snippet of the concept of why we needed a perfect representative. It's why in the Old Testament, when God called for a lamb to be sacrificed for this temporary atoning of sin, according to the annual feast calendar, and the head of the household would transfer visually, symbolically, his sin and the sin of his family on the head of a ram or the head of a sheep or whatever, and then they would spill the blood. Could it just be any old animal? It was supposed to be what? It was supposed to be a spotless lamb. What's the picture there? The lamb didn't deserve to die. Everybody else deserved to die, you see. And so take away the virgin birth and you take away the ability of a human to be perfect. Take away the ability of a human to be perfect and you take away the the role of the Lord Jesus to become our substitute. Take away the ability of, our, of Jesus to be our substitute and we're stuck deep in our ditch and we can't get out, you see. But now God can look at Jesus and he can say, the, the holy, righteous son of God that the angel said he would be, will be born in you. And in his holiness, he qualifies to take all the sinfulness of the world and bring it on himself and then take that holiness and transfer it over to you so that we can have, in a sense, a negotiated deal of forgiveness. It's the only deal that works because there's no way by your works that you can get your sin forgiven. You have to have a substitute. There's other roles, and I have to stop talking, and we'll turn to the table. Think about the priestly role of our Lord Jesus as our representative. He is a qualified high priest, isn't he? He can enter the presence of a holy God and and on our behalf intercede for us. That's something he does even for us as believers. If he was a man, and if he needed forgiveness, and if he wasn't perfect, he couldn't be an intercessory high priest for us. And on it goes. All of the function and the role of God in the flesh. Let me ask you one other thing. If he wasn't virgin born, implanted by the Holy Spirit, declaring his deity for God, how would he be able to look out at a stormy sea and say, peace be still? Because another old man, 
born of a man and born of a woman couldn't do that. And then one day when they nailed him to the cross and put him in the tomb, yes, the Father was involved and the Holy Spirit was involved, but even by his own power he did what? He rose victorious from the grave. An ordinary man couldn't do that. And the identity with humanity so that we have this one who can relate to us. What a marvelous story, isn't it? What an amazing story. So this virgin birth really matters. Liberal theologians and skeptics and agnostics and atheists have tried to attack it as unintellectual. And it becomes the very battleground over biblical authority. It is confused in the area of doctrinal clarity. But oh, what a beautiful common ground the virgin birth creates for deity and humanity to come together. Now, I'll tell you something, you boys and girls in here, if you're listening still, I need to tell you something. Hold your ears over, your hands over their ears. I'm not going to tell you that Santa Claus isn't real and spoil that one, but I'm going to tell you Christmas isn't about you and your gifts. And it's not about candy canes. Christmas is all about God loving the world so much that he sent his son to be born of a virgin. That's an amazing story, isn't it? You believe this stuff? You believe this stuff? I hope so. All of your eternity is based upon it, isn't it? Let's bow in prayer, please. Father, thank you for this amazing story. Would you please help us to focus at least for a few minutes on the things that really matter? Thank you, Father, for not forgetting us in our original state of sinfulness. Thank you for sending your Son in this amazing way to gestate in the tummy of a little girl nine months later to be born as a helpless babe, to be held in her arms, to be raised up and and even taught some things. Imagine the omniscient God in the flesh being taught something. But being the only one capable of and worthy of being our sin bearer. So grow us in our understanding of these realities and show us how to worship at a more deep and genuine level. Clarify any confusion and things that take away from the marvel of this wonderful story and the clarity of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.